I love this church, um, and I love each one. Craig greeted, greeted me this morning. He said, good morning, Tim. And he kind of paused. And he says, you look, um, you look really clean this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Put a lot, it takes a lot of time. You do know. Spent a lot of time on this here this morning. Um, we, have, we have a few moments uh, just to, to kind of close out from all the busyness of the world and just pause here in this word. Um, the Holy Spirit is with us. He fills this place. And we're going to now bow our heads and ask that he would come and, and speak to our hearts um, through his word this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we do thank you so much for uh, these few moments that we have together in this text. And I would pray, Lord, that you would illuminate it, um, that we would examine um, as an example is given to us, that we would, we would learn how to clearly communicate the full weight and truth and expanse of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, for every single person that is here. And God, I would ask that you would minister to our hearts um, May you please be with me and give me strength and clarity of thought and mind and speech. May everything that is said and done be for your glory and for yours alone. We ask this in the strong and wonderful and powerful name of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen and amen. Okay, we have been involved um, now a couple months in this little series called Rescued, and we've kind of built our way. We talk about the what. We spend several weeks on the what. Like, what, what, what is this? whole message, the gospel. We talked about creation and fall, and we talked about this, this, this chasm that exists between a holy God and sinful man. And we know that, that God closed that gap by rescuing us, by offering his own son, Jesus, and the work that was done on the cross and the tomb. We talked about justification, sanctification. We talked about how, like, how do we take this message of the gospel and, and now bring it to the world that we're called to live in? And we talked about the fact that the how is you, Okay, you and I have been created in his image. We are to reflect his glory. We have been given a purpose, and that purpose is always, is always, is always to point to the creator. The last couple of weeks we've been in John chapter 4. We talked about like who are we ministering to? Who do we, who do we work to connect with and relate with and communicate with? And we talked about what? The, the lost that are out there, the hopeless and the forgotten. We talked about this woman at the well that people just, just, just brushed her off to the side. And we pause and we go to those ones. Just like Jesus paused and went to that woman at the well. We looked last week at, at the fact of, of, of the urgency of this call, of the plea. When, when should this happen? When do we do this? Now, like at this very moment, that, that clock is ticking and it never stops, that the fields are white unto harvest, that we are to do a job. And we don't pause on this. We don't wait until, what, four months until the harvest. No, at this very moment. So there's this sense of urgency that we wake up every morning with a sense of pressing, pressing need before us. Now, today what I want to do for a few moments here, don't watch that clock. That clock is already wrong. I already, I already was, was given note of that. Don't watch that clock. It's slow, okay? Uh, like others that are here today are kind of slow. Anyway, <clears throat> I want to show you this morning how, like, how do we do this? Like, what, 
what actually comes out of our mouth. What do we say? What, what don't we say? How do we bridge the gap? How do we make the connection, turn the conversation from small talk that talk to, to, to talk that matters a thousand years from now? There's all kinds of conversations that you engage in every single week. Someone was talking to me this week and, and, and made a comment about a Jeep. And, and I said, yeah, well, it's, it's all going to burn up in the end anyway. And he said, you mean you got like an electrical problem? I'm like, no, 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 no. A perfect lead-in. Okay, we were talking about days of the week with someone else. And, and, the, and the word Sunday came up. And I, I talked about what? You, God says you, you work six days and you rest one day. Everyone understands that. Automatically, you have a lead-in. I was talking with someone in one of those little Amish um, horse and buggy cart things went by, okay? And conversation started, and you end up, what? For by grace you save through faith, not of works. There's no works that are going to make you holy. No works that are going to make you righteous. How do we do this with subjects all week long? Music and movies and sports and weather and politics and fashion and entertainment and food. All of these conversations. What do you do for a living? Every conversation. We turn the corner from small talk to talk that matters a thousand years from now. Well, what is it not going to look like? Let me give you first, first a few things very quickly. What it's not going to look like. This better never happen, okay? This first and foremost is never going to be a, what I call a drive-by or a hit-and-run style of evangelism. Knock on the door, here's a track, you're heading to hell, we'll see you, okay? It should and will never look like that. We talk about a church that we live with relationships. We greet one another with what? You look really clean this morning. We're close, okay? Relationships matter. That's the way it's going to look like. How is it not going to, it's not going to be robotic. It's not going to be uncaring. Here it is. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Hope you're pleased with this, God. We have to have, we'll see it in our text this morning, a weight and a heaviness, and a burden, and a care, and a concern for lost souls. It's not going to happen by you winning the argument, okay? It's not going to happen by you proving that you're right and someone else is wrong. You know what that reveals is that you're an arrogant jerk, is what it reveals, So it's not going to happen like that either. It's not going to happen by this kind of broad message, God is good, God is great, yeah, God, and just focus. No, no, we have to get to the Son of God. We have to get to what? Jesus, the Messiah, the one who rescues, the one who redeems. So we know what it's not going to look like. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 17 this morning, a well known text that is an incredible example of using that which surrounds us, the culture that surrounds us, as a means to connect, relate, communicate the gospel to others. Follow along with me. It's a little bit of a long text. We'll muscle our way through it. Acts chapter 17, we pick it up in verse 16. Here it is. The words are on the screen in front of you. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his, his spirit was provoked within him. 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed you could in a sense take a fairly long text and you could in a sense compress it into the words that i've written or left for you a quote from the apostle paul on the bottom of your little note sheet okay what therefore you worship as unknown i proclaim to you the god who made the world and everything in it he's actually not that far from each one of us now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world that in a sense is the outline within it that i want to share with you this morning three points the first one is this as we learn how to like turn the corner from small talk to talk that matters a thousand years from now know this know that any culture any culture can point to our creator. Any culture, anything you see around you, any influence, any impact that you hear and, and touch and can see, 
anything can point to our creator. How does this happen? Well, Athens, first century, is a godless culture. Paul is in Athens. We know that Athens is a leading influential philosophical center. Its its culture is impacting much of the entire Roman Empire. What had happened here is that Paul had been in Thessalonica. Um, He was in Berea. Things got heated up. Wherever he goes, he kind of stirs the pot a little bit. Got heated up. He was chased out of town once again. And so he is in Athens and he's waiting for a couple of his bros, Timothy and Silas, to join him. And together they'll posse up. They'll make their way to Corinth. Now, in this time, Paul had a few minutes to spare. And so he takes a walk around town. And it says this as he takes a walk, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw that the city was full of idols. Think about um, on street corners, on the, the pinnacle of buildings, there were, there were literally carved or graven images made from stone or, or from gold or from marble. Images of gods. Think of a polytheistic Greek religion encompassed a myriad of gods, different ones from human conditions to abstract ideas. You had the God of wisdom, or you had the God of, of, of justice, the God of love. The most important of all of these Olympian gods, they were led by Zeus, but there was Athena and Apollo and Poseidon and Hermes and, and Hera and Aphrodite. Many gods, images and pictures all over the place. As Paul is walking, there's a heaviness that comes, a burden on his soul for for those souls around him that are held captive by what? By idols, by false religion, by, by faulty belief systems. The word here is paroxeno, provoked. It means that he was grieved in his spirit to the point of being angered. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. When you think about lostness, the lostness of people around you, does it burden you? Is there a heaviness? Does lostness, the subject that someone that you see in the break room and have coffee with every single day could die tomorrow and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ would be forever and ever and ever separate. Does that lostness, like you're touching, you're bumping up against that every day, does something grieve your soul about that? It should. What Paul does is he talks to the what? The intelligentsia of his day. It says that he goes to the synagogues. It says that he actually goes to the marketplace. Interesting that he went to them. Sometimes we have a mindset like, okay, here I am. If anyone ever wants to know about Jesus, I've been sitting on my couch for several days now and no one has knocked on my door and asked me about Jesus. That's not the model that we're seeing. Paul went to them. What does he do? What does he do? He closes the gap. And he, in a sense, directs their attention. Athens, a city known for its philosophy and arts and religion, and he actually makes this statement. I perceive that in every way, you are very religious. Interesting that the term religion doesn't win you heaven. 
right? You're very religious, but it doesn't win you redemption. It doesn't win you forgiveness. Being religious doesn't win you or gain you or get you eternal life. That's the reason it says what? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You walk around Lock Haven recently, like downtown Lock Haven. You just walk the streets. I would encourage you to do that. If we're going to move closer to our community, we better familiarize ourselves with the community that we're ministering to. Now, I have, walked, I have not seen a, uh, a hunk of, of marble that is carved into the shape of Hermes. I've not seen that. But do you realize that if you walk around our community or walk around any community, any culture, it will quickly reveal to you what people worship. Think context. I wrote this down. Think context, think context, think context. Walk through almost any person's home. I would encourage you to wait till you're invited into that home. Okay? Like, don't do that in the middle of the night. You're going to find yourself in trouble. Spend time in almost any home, and it will very quickly reveal to you where one's affections lie. That there's perhaps not a little carved image of Buddha, but there is what? There is attention that is given. There are affections that are shown, and there is investment, and there is time towards all kinds of things today. Television, and computers, and entertainment, and games, and sports, and ease, and comfort, and collections. Any one of these things, there is nothing wrong with a collection. I started when I was a little kid. I collected shoeboxes. Like, like there's nothing, there's not a God to the shoebox, but I was just fascinated. Like, that's a really interesting, and I collected them, and I had like piles and piles of these things. But today, I still collect baseballs, and I collect rocks. Like, like, you can have them. I'm not worshiping them. There's nothing wrong with a collection. But if you're focusing your time and attention is so much on that that you lose interest in everything else, that all your, 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 your investment is going one way. And yet what's interesting is that you can use anything in our culture. Think about the surrounding community that we have. Think about the beauty of the Pennsylvania wilds that surround us. Wonderful things, beautiful things. We can use those to steer conversation, the subject of kayaking through any one of the rivers. Hiking or biking, rails to trails. Think about the subject of fishing, the subject of hunting. Any one of those points to our creator. What is our community, Lock Haven University, and farming and wrestling and, and the paper towel industry? Whatever it is that's around us. Everything and anything can point to the creator. Listen to how, how Paul does this. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. Think about this. God has created us in such a way, Paul is saying, that we are designed to worship. That as people are what? Searching their way and feeling their way, that in many ways, what is happening? God has created us, what? 
in such a way that we seek him. People don't know that they're seeking God, but they're seeking something to fill the void in their life. Enter you and I, enter Big Woods Bible Church, enter any believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is making it very clear here that God in his sovereignty determined that all people will worship. Therefore, our responsibility is to direct people to worship the one and only true God that matters. Paul does two things here. He tells them what God has done in creation. And he also what points to what God has done recently in first century, what God has done for them for redemption. And so think about this. Culture points us to the creator. Number two, trust that our creator will always point to our redeemer. Anything in our culture can point to our creator, anything. And now what we do is we turn the corner by way of saying that our creator trusts the fact will always, 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 always point to what? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us. It says Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this text tells us how he did this. He draws a very straight, short line from what? The God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, that's the creator. And then he uses this phrase, what? That in this world, people are seeking God, feeling their way towards him, that he is actually not far from each one of us. Well, what what do you mean by that? He's not far. A couple weeks, we're going to be celebrating the birth of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, the little baby born in a manger. I was reading just this week in Matthew chapter 1. It says what? That, that, that behold, the virgin, angel comes, and he's going to give a message, and, and this little young woman, this virgin, is going to conceive, and she's going to bear a son. She's going to have a son, and, and he, you should call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That in a sense, we live in a world and where people are groping and they're feeling, they're looking for something. And you're like, what? I know what you're looking for. He's actually not that far from us. He is with us. He's with us. I love this approach. Because you cannot preach what? You cannot present the gospel without preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And Paul, Paul is not ashamed. We know in Romans chapter one, what? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We've got to what? It's not God is good. God is great. Yeah, God. That's neat. That's a part. But we don't rest there. The world has no problem with God. The world has a massive problem with Jesus. That's where we have to turn the message. That's where we've got to begin to make the turn to say, we've got to get to this one. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Well, what conversations? Ask anyone, ask anyone. So what, what, did you, what do you think about? Like you hear this one Jesus. We, like, we talk about him a lot. Ask someone. What's your understanding? I, I always think of what the, the children's um, Sunday school paper that goes home, okay? And there's usually this picture somewhere of Jesus. 
And he's always, he wears a lot of white, apparently. And he has like a baby blue sash across his chest like this. And his, his beard is like perfectly trimmed, perfectly trimmed. And he has like this shoulder length kind of like um, blown dry hair. And he has this amazing smile and like perfectly straight teeth and sparkling blue eyes. All Jewish people have blue eyes. And he usually has like a, a little lamb that he's petting over here and a child on his lap that he's giving attention to. And we have this kind of image, like that's what the world kind of thinks of Jesus. That's not really what we see in scripture. There's, there's another view. There's what I would call the Catholic painting view that this anemic, naked Jesus that is on the cross and he's bloodied and he is, he is beat up and he is in pain and, and agony, but yet for some reason in all of their images, he's still on the cross where we don't show Jesus on the cross because he's, he didn't stay there. He went to the tomb and he didn't stay there either. So, so we have like these images and the world has like this idea of like, who's Jesus? Well, we have to go to the fact of what we know for certain. What, what do we know for certain? There's virtually nothing that is written in all of the canon of scripture. Okay, that talks about his physical appearance. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and there was no beauty that we should desire him. Okay, he looked like a carpenter in his workshop. That's it. So don't try to create some kind of a view. And he probably had really nice complexion. No, probably not. Nothing that we should ever desire him. We do know that what? John says that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We do know that he was absolutely perfect and the only perfect one. Sinless, sinless. We can't, we can't make it from the, when we get up in the morning to brush our teeth before we end up sinning. It happens that quick. Like, where's your mind going? Really? And yet he is sinless. He is righteous. He is holy. He's without spots. Completely sovereign. He reigns and rules over everything and everyone. Every particle of dust is under his control. We do know that he is what? He's concerned about healing the sick. He's concerned, what? In his ministry, we saw about washing feet and serving and giving and forgiving and dying. We know that Jesus is all about victory, that he is victorious. That's what we do know about him. We don't know that he wore a little blue sash. We do know that thankfully, what? Many people in our world truly love Jesus. We also know tragically that many people, many people, and you've met some of them, hate. And they just despise. Who do you think you are to bring him into the conversation? And we also know for certain that probably most people in our world, particularly in our culture and in our own community, are completely indifferent. You can have him if you want. Personally, he's not for me. That's the culture that we live in. We do know that Jesus, what, also is always talking about life. It's interesting that most people in our community are very interested in life as well. And they put great effort and focus and attention into their own 
lives. And Jesus is what? He's always talking, John 10, 10, about abundant life. He talks what? About everlasting life. He talks about eternal life. He is the bread of life, the resurrection of the life. He's the living water. Jesus is the only means of life. And yet we live in a world that what is filled with death and shootings and bombings and terrorism. Therefore, what? It's very easy to make the connection from what? The culture to the creator to the redeemer. Because everyone wants to live. And there's where we make the connection. There's where we turn the corner from small talk to talk that matters a thousand years from now. Thirdly and finally, what? We are to speak of the fact that our Redeemer will one day be our judge. You can't leave this out. Okay, you can't skip this part. Like, well, this doesn't sell real well. Let's just stick with, you know, the like nice blown dry hair. Speak of the fact that our Redeemer will one day be our judge. We saw this in, in verse 30 and 31. What? Paul's calling people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That, that on your daytime, you have, like, you have appointments that you can move. And then you have like dates and appointments that you can't move. Like you don't have that authority. You don't have that liberty. This is one of those days. It has been appointed. It has been set. There will be what? A final day of judgment. Spend some time in Revelation chapter 20. And we get a glimpse of this. Therefore, it is of utmost importance to communicate that if one rejects Jesus, and you've got this window of opportunity called life here on this earth. If one rejects Jesus, then he will reject you. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. You can't can't get any clearer than that. Therefore, when Paul stresses what God's call to repentance, it's it's not just as much as an invitation as it is a warning as it is what? A command. And I think that that's what we have to present it, that his soul was provoked. His soul was bothered by the lostness around him. And so not only does he offer what? This, 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 this salvation through the Redeemer, Jesus, and invites them, but there's a sense of warning here. And that's what I think, that if we just keep ourselves busy enough and like, full enough and satisfied enough that we don't have to worry about that appointed day. No, there is an appointed day. I want to warn you about that. Like there's a, there's the road ends and there's a cliff and everyone, everyone, okay, is going to come to that day. And either you're going to go over it or what? One will rescue you. What's the response here? It says some mocked. They just laughed. What's interesting, mocking is a defense when pride itself, I believe, is attacked. There's no, there's no logical defense. So that's just what? Do what much of the world does, just resort to ridicule. Still the reaction of many, many people today. You actually believe that this guy 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I actually do. 
Some will mock. It says some will delay. They succumb to the curse of the intellectual. There's this academic detachment. They viewed themselves as, as in a sense, being outside that everyone else, what? But they are what? Um, they're, 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 they're listening at another date. My schedule is more important than yours. Therefore, I'll put off and postpone. Perhaps someday I'll get to this. Dangerous place to be. Interesting that what? Delaying tactics are still what many intellectuals, not quite out of place yet. And thirdly, it says that some believe. Beautiful, beautiful word that some actually heard. They repented. They changed their minds. Some of these what? Stoics, intellectuals were earnest and they were, they were honest. They heard the good news of Jesus. When someone hears and understands the gospel message, it delivers them from superstitious fears and, and breaks down what the darkness of people's heart and opens up to them a God of true glory. Realize that as you and I are called to share the gospel, that's exactly the response. Some will mock, some will delay, but some will believe. Let me remind you of this. You and I are just to do our job. And you leave the results in the hands of a sovereign God. So you don't manipulate the situation. Okay? You don't, in a sense, what? I, I, just, I just can't believe you have offered it clearly. You and I, we use the... I can't believe I'm using this example, the Bill Belichick uh, approach. Just do your job. Just do your job. Oh, I can't handle him. But it's true. We're to just do our job and leave the results in the hands of the sovereign God. So hopefully you come away this morning with what? Culture? Culture points to creator. Creator points to redeemer. Redeemer points to judge. That's all it is. That's all it is. And we see that very clearly. Culture, creator, redeemer, judge. May we use that model that is given to us in Acts chapter 17 as a model of the what. How we take small talk and turn it into talk that matters a thousand years from now. We have before us an amazing opportunity. I love big words. I told you that everyone like in the world celebrates communion on the first Sunday of the month. Let's do it on the third Sunday. It really, in, in the word of God, we have the liberty to do it whenever we want. We're just to do it regularly. One of the definitions in the second service, we're going to be receiving seven people, seven people as new members. And, and I remind them that they're entering into what? A group of people where we're defined by, by ones who regularly remember the communion table. And we what? Observe and celebrate and teach baptism. They're, they're, they're definitions of what we do as a church for the glory of God. So today we set apart a time from the course of the business of the month to focus on the central part of the message that I just talked about with the gospel. That Jesus Christ was sitting with his disciples 
in the upper room and, and, and he is nearing, the hour is nearing of his death. And they were like getting glimpses of it and pieces of it. So Jesus, master teacher, rabbi, greatest communicator, says, let, let, me, let me give to you a lesson that, that you can hold on to. You can visually see and touch and smell. They're seated together at the upper room, referred to as the Last Supper. And he introduces to them what? The bread and the cup, elements of the communion table, the Lord's table. And as he was talking, it says that he took bread. It was bread without leaven in it. It wasn't puffy like this. And he, he showed the bread to the disciples and he said that, that I'm the bread of life. And he took bread and he said, but the bread is, is going to be broken. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be going to the cross. And this bread is a picture of my own body. My body's going to be broken. And he broke the bread and gave it to me. He said, eat this. We're eating your body, yes. Not literally, but symbolically as a picture so that you don't forget. I'm going to be with you all time. But also it says that he took the fruit of the vine and he poured it out. He said, just as, as I, I pour this out, my blood is going to be poured out all over the place. It's going to be beat and pierced and whipped. I'm going to die. I'm going to offer my own blood, my own life for you. John, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. There's only one pure and precious, perfect Lamb. That was Jesus, and that's why it's only his blood that can pay the price for your sin and for my sin. Jesus poured that out, and and then they passed it in a cup. They they all probably drank from one cup. We're not going to do that today, okay? They all took a sip, and they passed it to the next one, and it lingered in their mouth for a a while. It was a reminder, just as, as that was in Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. We have these reminders of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so it's our responsibility as leaders of this church to serve this to you and remind you, don't forget like this message that we have to communicate to the entire world. This is the message. Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserved. He paid the price for our sin. Now it's about trusting him and accepting him, not forgetting what he's done. And so that's why we have this. We want to serve this to you. I'm going to invite the elders to come up and they're going to serve you the the bread first. I'll ask God's blessing on both the bread and the cup. Then we'll serve you the cup. Please understand that if you have acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, that this is for you, take this. In a moment of quietness and solitude and seriousness, take this as a reminder of what Jesus Christ did, offered his body and his blood for you. We'll serve this to you and I'll pray and then we will partake of the cup.